Please turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. I was doing some studying while I was away, and when I came to this one and I was preparing it, I thought, really, this is better for a Sunday morning sermon than it is for a Wednesday night sermon, or more appropriate. And I, little did I know, when I came back, I'd be preaching today, and so this is a fruit of that labor. And uh, I wanted to explain that it's a very, very simple, I'm trying to make it very, very simple, especially for the children, uh, but also for the unsaved that uh, are unfamiliar with the gospel. I want to make the gospel as clear as I can and as simple as I can explain some things about the gospel that will help us to understand it better. And so if it sounds a little childish or a little too simple, well, that's the reason why. But I've always found that when I preach to the children, the adults are the biggest hearers. They, they love it. They love the same things. And we like simplicity, I know. Here we have in Proverbs 12:28, In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, May the word of God penetrate our hearts this morning. It will only do so if you do a work in our hearts. So help to make this preaching clear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have life and death set before us. What could be more simple? What could be more fundamental than that? What could be more essential? People hazard great dangers in search of wealth of all kinds, and they go to great lengths to obtain fame or a certain amount of status or power in the world. And we plan for those things that we hope will bring us pleasure. People march in the streets and they carry placards proclaiming their allegiance to their cause. And yet, what are any of these things compared to the possession of life? Life is taken for granted until it's threatened, threatened by disease or some kind of violence. Then all at once, nothing matters except protecting that life. Isn't that right? This passage tells us that there is a way that leads to life. If there were such a thing as a fountain of youth, and if it were believed that such a fountain actually existed, uh, you know, somewhere in the world, Think of how popular that place would be. Think about how well-trodden the pathway to the place would be. If there were a map to it, that map would be worth more than any map has ever been worth in the history of the world. But I can tell you that there is no such thing on this earth as a fountain of youth. Uh, There used to be a tree of life, and if someone ate of it, they would live forever. But when Adam fell... Into sin, the way to the tree of life was blocked and its fruit was confiscated. Death was then introduced to creation, and it's been with us ever since. So death is the direct consequence of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. There's nothing more expensive than sin. It'll cost you your life. Sin creates a death that is both eternal and very, very deadly. Everyone that sins is under this debt. 
And since, as Romans 3.23 also teaches us, all have sinned, then we know that the sentence of death is passed upon all of us. You know, this is a hard thing, especially this is a hard thing for children. It's hard for them to accept and it's frightening to them when they come to that age that they realize that they too must die someday. There aren't, uh, these aren't the kind of conversations that we enjoy having with them. This is bad news. We don't like to give our children bad news. No one likes bad news, and especially to have to tell a young child bad news. And we have young children here today. And if you're a young child here today, and perhaps you've just come to that realization, or maybe even in the sermon you're coming to that realization that you too must die someday, but I'm sure that all the children here already know that, and perhaps you've thought about it uh, and uh, been troubled by it. But it is news that must not be ignored by any of us. For no one will embrace the good news until he or she has embraced the bad news. But thank God there is good news. There is good news, children. So I want you to listen very carefully to this. But before we talk about the good news, it's important that we also talk a little bit more about the bad news because it's not just death that is the bad news. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed to men, for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, the judgment. You know, we live in a day when judgment day is not believed by the majority of people that we run across in America. It's denied by people. It's even scoffed at. But they can deny it all they want. God has promised it, and it will come to pass for each one of us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's the one appointment you will never miss. You won't call in late. You'll show up for it. There are three things that will work hard to make sure that you don't think about this. And those three things are the world and the flesh and the devil. Remember, as I was a child... I trained my mind not to think about death. I did. I had to train my mind not to think about it. And millions of people do that today. The thought of death is abhorrent to the flesh. But the flesh has its allies. The world is an ally. It sets many things before us every day to distract us from serious thoughts about our souls. We're continually surrounded by worldly distractions. Have you ever noticed people in public nowadays with their smartphones and their eyes glued to them? Um, we see the distractions in everything that we experience in life. Lori and I were in a restaurant here a few weeks ago, and I just kind of noticed that uh, it was, it was a, they had TV screens all around, you know, these big screens. You've been in those kind of restaurants. They had uh, basketball on this one and softball on this one and uh, uh, racing motorcycles on another one and and uh, uh, just anything to just, they had something for everybody. And if that wasn't enough, they had music loud enough to make sure you couldn't hear yourself think. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a never-ending list of things that we can spend our time on in the world, isn't there? And if our minds are set on the world, 
we'll seek out whatever attracts us the most and gladly spend our time and all of our thoughts on that accordingly. It's much more pleasant than thinking about dying, much more pleasant than thinking about standing before an angry God who has promised to judge sin. And then, of course, we have our enemy, the devil. His deceptions are all around us. And I think of him, he's like a master puppeteer. He's pulling the strings on his puppets. And uh, and he's uh, everywhere you turn, anywhere you, you turn, you see uh, him pulling the strings of his puppets. And one of them is people and their activities and their opinions. And another is things. Cars, boats, clothes, houses, video games, and a host of other things. He dangles these in front of us. And there are things that interest us all, as I've mentioned. They may be very innocent things in themselves. Uh, there are many things there, there's nothing inherently wrong with. But the preoccupation with them, uh, uh, that's the problem. And the love of them and the idolatrous affection for these things. That's the problem. Another of his puppets is pleasures, lawful pleasures and unlawful pleasures. And people are filling their lives seeking things, pleasures, and the uh, good opinion of people. Does God see all this happening and stay silent? Is God silent when the world is screaming at us? All these things and the devil is doing everything he can to distract you from thinking serious thoughts about your, 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 your soul. No, God is not silent. Not at all. In 1 John 2, 15 through 16, for example, he says this. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And you might ask, well, what's so bad about that? Well, the next verse, verse 17, tells us, and the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. It's all passing away. The world is doomed to destruction one day. But even if that isn't for another 10,000 years, we'll all lose whatever we've gained in the world anyway, the moment we die. And indeed, many of them lose these things long before they die. Oftentimes, uh, in the nursing home, uh, they'll reflect on how they've lost everything, have nothing. I remember when my dad was in his final nursing home and how sorrowful he was that he, he all his life was basically taken away from him. Uh, everything he lived for, he lived for all the things in the world and and those things were all gone, and he never could reconcile himself with that. They're going to be taken away from you. So, if everybody knows that they'll lose everything upon death, why do they choose it? Why do they think about it? Why do they uh, chase it so much? Well, here's why. The world and the things in it are all they have. There is nothing else. That's all they have. And so they, that makes them in bondage to those things. I made this statement a few times and people always uh, look curious at me when I say it. I say, you know, loving Jesus makes me even appreciate my truck more. <laughs> Think about that. Because I can, I can enjoy it without making it an idol. 
But anyway, um, you see, the, the world and the thi- and things in it are all they have, and so they're in bondage to those things. And they do not possess these things so much as these things possess them. Hebrews 2.15 tells us that this bondage that they're under is because of the fear of death. It says, through the fear of death, we're all their lifetime subject to bondage. They're in bondage to the things of the world, to the world and the things in it. And every new thing that they get takes their mind off of death just for a little while longer. Oh, yes, yes, this is bondage. You might argue with it, but it is bondage. But while they're enjoying the world and its things and its entertainment, and while they're in the pursuit of them, they don't have time or inclination to think about spiritual matters and the matters of the soul. And the devil deceives them. So if they do have any thoughts about dying or eternal matters, he offers them false religions. He tells them that all that's necessary to enter heaven is to die. If you you know see secular movies and everything, don't you? See, that's that's really the requirement to, to enter heaven. All you really have to do is die, and then you go, automatically go to heaven. That is not true. But the world is pushing that idea, and other false religions, religions that teach works for salvation, uh, uh, all man-made religions, uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The devil has a lot of servants a lot of false prophets, and they go around today. Some of them are evangelicals. I have to tell you that. To tell you, you can have Jesus, but you don't have to change your life. You can have Jesus without repentance. You can have Jesus and still live the same way you've always lived. You can keep your sins and still have Jesus. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you believe that, you're on your way to hell. And I don't care... How many pastors assure you that you're a Christian just because you believe in Jesus in your head? That's not the way salvation works. It's a path of righteousness. Though we're not saved by our righteousness, we're going to, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. So there's many false prophets, and Satan uses them as his agents to deceive millions into believing uh, the world's view or these false religions' view of how you get to heaven. He stands in front of the Broadway. This is what he does. The false prophet stands in front of the Broadway and he says, here's the way. Walk in this and you'll be all right. Uh, People are so pleased to hear these things because they fit right in with their lifestyle. That they despise Christians when they tell them different. And they'll get angry with you. People don't want to hear that they're naturally dead in their trespasses and sins, as the Bible says, and that unless they believe in Jesus Christ and surrender to his lordship over them, the wrath of God is abiding upon them. That's what it says, John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God 
abides on him. But so many people think that believing is just a mental ascent. That believing is not simply a mental ascent. It's a believing that puts you on a path. You choose that path, you get on that path. It's called the path of righteousness in our text that we have before us. But the devil has an easier way to a peaceful and happy eternity that seems much better to people. But this way, this false way, all these false ways were prophesied in the old time. In Proverbs 14, 12, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is all very bad news. But this passage we're considering tonight gives us very good news. And it says that there is a pathway that we can take where there is no death. And it's called the way of righteousness. As our text says, in the way of righteousness is life. And in this pathway, there is no death. Now let me tell you about this way that God has given us so that we don't have to worry about death and judgment. What is this pathway that leads to life? And in this pathway, there is no death. Well, though all of us were condemned because of sin, God had compassion on us. Children, God felt sorry for us. You see, God gets no pleasure out of the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't get any pleasure by casting a soul into hell. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save those who will repent and believe. You all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful promise. And then the next verse says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What grace, what grace that God sent his Son into the world. And when God sent Jesus into the world, he made him in our likeness. In other words, he gave Jesus a human body. Children, he gave Jesus a human body for this reason. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, Christ is speaking and he's saying this here. He says, here I am and the children whom God has given me. And then in the following verses in that chapter, it says this, inasmuch then as the children, that is those who come to Christ, inasmuch them as the children have partakers, have become partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, this takes us all the way from Jesus' birth to his death and resurrection. Jesus had to have a human body. Children, he had to have a human body because without a human body, he couldn't die. He had to die. And that's how he defeated death. His death was the defeat of the devil, it says here in Hebrews, that passage I read in Hebrews. And the power of death was taken away from the devil. So Jesus' conquering of death was on our account. In other words, he conquered death on your behalf, for us, 
he conquered death. Not for himself, for us. He defeated it for our sake, that we not, might not be under its bondage any longer. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15:55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you comprehend what he's saying here? When Jesus defeated the devil, he gained victory over him. At the same time, he gained victory over death for us on our account. For us. God gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We think Jesus gained the victory. Yes, he gained the victory for us. It was Jesus' victory, but it was his victory for us. Get that in your heart. It's so important to get that in your heart. And that means that all that belong to Jesus the children whom God has given me, as it says in Hebrews 2.13. In the first century, before Christians were called Christians, Christians were called the people of the way. The way of Christ and the way of righteousness are one and the same because Christ is the only way of righteousness. We can't have righteousness any other way. Isaiah 64 tells us, that all of our righteousness, our own righteousness, is but filthy rags in the sight of God. So this is why we need a Savior. You can't work your way to heaven. None of your works are good enough. And so Jesus came to give us a way of righteousness that God would accept. Our text calls it the way of righteousness for two reasons. First, as I said, we cannot get to heaven on our own because our works are not nearly good enough. Only the works of Jesus are good enough. So when you believe in Jesus and you repent, a thing called double imputation comes into play. Let me explain double imputation. Children, that sounds like a big word. Imputate, double imputation, what's that? Ooh, ooh, that sounds... You could, now I'm going to explain it very simple. Double imputation is very easy to understand. You have the cross of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, if you come to Christ, if you believe in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. In other words, it's given to you. God takes that righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on your account. And then all of your sins are put on his account. Your sins are imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to you. You children can understand that, right? Double imputation. You go home and... Tell your friends, I know what double imputation is. Explain your double imputation to your friends and you will have witnessed to them. That's the gospel. Nobody gets saved without double imputation. We need the imputation of his righteousness and we need our sins to be dealt with and the only way they can is to be put upon Jesus and that's what the cross is all about. That's salvation. Nothing more can save you. All the rites and ceremonies of your religion cannot save you. All of your good works cannot save you. All of your sincerity cannot save you. Only the blood of Jesus put to your account in this matter of double imputation. And then 
we can be said we're on the path of righteousness. We have Jesus' righteousness. But the second way that um, reason that this is called the way of righteousness is because God then gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us how to live for him. I remember when a man was witnessing to me about Christ the night I got saved, and I remember thinking to myself, I thought, okay, but, but, but how am I going to do this? How am I going to live righteously? I mean, all I knew is living unrighteously. I, I don't know how to live righteously. And uh, he, he helped me with this thought. He said, no, don't worry about learning how to live the Christian life that you can't do this because the Holy Spirit comes to you and he teaches you. He takes you by the hand, so to speak, and he leads you through life and he teaches you righteousness. He, you, you touch something hot, you get burned. He says, oh, don't touch that, don't touch that. And you, you go a certain path and you're starting to get lost and the Holy Spirit says, oh, you're on the wrong path. Here's the path. Walk in it. The Holy Spirit guides us through life and he teaches us. You don't have to be concerned that you'll know how to live righteously because the Holy Spirit teaches all of his children to live righteously. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching them that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now we have false gospel out there preached among evangelicals that you don't have to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this, equal, in this evil age. All you've got to do is just say, Jesus, I want you to save me. I'm going to keep my sins. And then they're going around like false prophets do and assuring them of their salvation. Don't you ever assure someone of their salvation if they're not living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It isn't like our sober, righteous, godly living is saving us. No, but that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Is he doing that in your life? Is he teaching you how to live for Jesus? Well, if you come to Christ, he will teach you how to live for Jesus. And that's the second reason why it's called the way of righteousness, because it is a way of righteousness. That's something that's lost in our generation. But it's the gospel. Anything else is not the gospel. And this, is, and this good news gets even better. Children, listen, the good news gets even better. In this way of righteousness, God is committed to the promise that there is no death. Did you hear me? No death. You don't have to worry about death. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been to, I've been to a funeral. I just went to a visitation the other night. I saw a dead body. I say, wait a minute. Does that, Pastor Hume, you're saying I don't really have to die after all? Well, it's a very simple statement of truth, and yet it's the most profound and wonderful truth that we could hear. No death. Now, this truth is stated elsewhere with more explanation. And since to understand the more obscure text, we go to a text that's a little clearer. Let's go to a clearer text to make to help understand this thing of no death. And for that, I want you to go to John chapter 11. Would you turn there with me to John chapter 11? And I want to talk to you a little bit about a man called Lazarus. And what Jesus said to his sister when Lazarus was still in the grave. Lazarus was in the grave at the time. This was said, now, they came to Jesus. Jesus was a long ways away, and uh, somebody sent word that Lazarus was sick. And they wanted him to come right away so Lazarus wouldn't die. 
But Jesus waited there for some time until Lazarus really was dead. And uh, and then he, uh, um, uh, he, he uh, I want to read verses 21 through 26. When, 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 when Jesus did actually get there, look at verse 21. Here's what, what happens when Jesus gets there. Now Lazarus is dead by this time. Verse 21, now Martha, and Martha was his sister. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now listen to these words of Jesus. He says the same thing our text says. In the path of this path of righteousness, there is no death. He said, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's what he says. Well, now, does Jesus say that you never have to go to another Christian's funeral? No, that's not what he's saying. But I believe what he's saying here is when he says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, it means that as far as we're concerned as believers, death doesn't exist. When our body dies, children, listen to this, When our body dies as a Christian, we simply move from one life to another. That's what you actually experience. You simply move from eternal life now to eternal life without your body for the time being. You you go to be with Jesus. What the Christian personally experiences is just moving with no interruption in our life. Because for us, we that are Christ, practically speaking, there is no death. The Bible is committed to this. Other passages confirm this. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But then he goes on to say in verse 8 of that same chapter, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And Paul says in Philippians 1.23 that this is far better. So, though it is true that the body must die, the spirit of the Christian must live because we have already have everlasting life. If you're a Christian today, you have everlasting life now. That means it it can't be taken away. That means when you die, you still have everlasting life. Your life just goes on with your spirit going to be with Jesus. In the meanwhile, our bodies sleep while we're away from our bodies for a little while until the resurrection. We go to heaven. It's like we just set our body aside for a little while. Is there anything to be afraid about in that, children? Should we be afraid of that? No, our body, we're just going to set it aside just for a little while until the resurrection 
Jesus uses the term sleep rather than death when speaking of the death of Lazarus. And that's a common term in the New Testament to speak when believers die, speaking of them going to sleep. First Thessalonians 4.13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. 1 Corinthians 15.51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Speaking of the same thing he spoke of here in, the, in 1 Thessalonians, he's speaking of the resurrection. Some will be alive at the coming of Christ. That's what he means in this passage in 1 Corinthians. Some will be alive when Christ comes. And if you're alive when Jesus comes, you don't even see the, the death of the body. You're just changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, you're changed into your resurrected body. So there are people that literally will not experience any death because they will be alive on the earth when Jesus comes. We want Jesus to come today, don't we? Yes. It helps us to, to, to want to do that, to have Jesus come in our lifetime. Now, this is both exciting and comforting for us. Think about this. The greatest problem you have, the greatest problem you have, the problem of death, is not a problem for you anymore if you're in Christ. For you, death has been canceled, to use a popular term. Death is canceled for you. No death. You can put a doormat in front of your, front of your door saying, no death here. The promise of eternal life doesn't start after you die. It starts when you believe. It's already begun for you. We that are in Christ have already received it. We have a sure inheritance, according to Peter. He says in 1 Peter 1.4, we have an incorruptible inheritance, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And he says in that same chapter, in this you greatly rejoice. And we should rejoice. Christian, are you rejoicing in all of this? You should rejoice. We should all rejoice every day because of this. God has solved the greatest problem in your whole life. And uh, uh, but then Peter goes on to say, he says, uh, uh, though for now, for a little while, if need be, you're grieved with various trials. We, we still have some trials to go through, Christian, while you're still alive on this earth. The victory we have over death doesn't keep us from the trials of this life. This is obvious because we all experience them, don't we? And Scripture acknowledges that these trials do actually grieve us as well. And some of these trials that grieve us actually fall into the category of Fiery trials, extra fiery, extra hurtful, more tears than normal in that fiery trial. Uh, he says in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. And I've had some fiery trials, and many of you have, most of you have, children, you will too. But I've learned over the years that the main thing that we need to do as we face these trials that must come upon all of us is to put them in their proper perspective. I'm not always very good at doing that. 
I got to admit. So I don't mean to say that I've gotten it down perfectly. It's an exercise that I need to go through over and over again as I go through various trials in my own life to put those trials in perspective. And that's the case for every Christian. And that's exactly what this verse in Proverbs does for us. And so many other passages that are like it. If we'll pay attention in the way of righteousness, there is life and there is no death. Doesn't that put things into perspective? It sure should for every Christian. Think of this also. The victory that we have over death is also a victory over judgment. Oh, we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Even Christians do. But it isn't a judgment that's going to hurt you. You're saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. You see, no one knows what real trouble is. You think you're in trouble? You think you've got troubles? Nobody knows what real trouble is until they stand before an angry God condemned for their sins. Robert Murray McShane wrote these words. He said, When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then how much I owe. You see, if we really have a a, a view of eternal matters, when you face your earthly trials, you'll be like Paul and say, these are light afflictions. These are very light. Have you ever heard a lost person say, I'm not afraid to die? I've heard people say that. And it's a lot of boasting. They are afraid of death. The Bible says they're afraid of death right there. So I say, okay, you know, I know they're lying right there because the Bible says they're afraid of death. They want to put on a big show that they're not afraid. And I think when people say that, I think, you don't know much about God, do you? Because if you realize that you're still in your sins and you're going to die in your sins and face an angry God, you'd be scared all right if you knew something about this God because he is a holy God. And the reason God had to go to all these pains of going through sending Jesus to save us from our sins is because God can't just say, all y'all, y'all sin free. I just pronounce y'all saved. I pronounce y'all forgive. God can't do that. You know, people say God can do anything. No, no, God can't do everything. God can accomplish all his holy will. But there are things God cannot do. Did you know that, children? God cannot lie. God cannot deny his holiness. God cannot deny his justice. And to let a sinner into heaven that hasn't come through the doorway of Jesus Christ would be not to deny his justice. And God simply cannot do that. He wants to save everybody. But he can only save those who come through Jesus Christ. And so, if you realize what kind of a God he is, you would be afraid of his judgment and you'd want to turn to Christ. Well, here's the perspective then. If we're in Christ, the way of righteousness, there is no death. And even the death of our body is not really like death for us. For the removal of our soul from our body only releases it to be brought into the presence 
of our Savior. And afterwards, in the resurrection, we'll have our bodies with us as well. So Paul calls all of these earthly troubles that we go through as light afflictions in comparison to facing the wrath of God. So the question for you this morning is this. Are you in the way of righteousness? Children, I'm asking you the question, are you in the way of righteousness? If not, why not? Why not come to Jesus today? Why not call upon him today? The Bible says, all that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He doesn't make it hard. He doesn't make it so hard to understand that a child couldn't come to him. He makes it simple so that even children can come to Jesus. If you're, if you're a child and you're hearing my voice today, you're not too young to come to Jesus. Your voice is no less important in heaven than my voice is. Jesus loves to hear from sinners. He loves to hear from them. The Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven over every sinner that repents. God rejoices to have you come to him. He's not trying to make it tricky for you. He's not trying to make it so that you can't figure it out. No, he just wants you to come to him, ask him to save you, and tell him, tell him I'm sorry for my sins, and I hope you'll, you'll help me to live for Jesus. You know what? You pray that sincerely. Jesus will come to you. I'm going to close now in prayer and then we're going to sing a hymn. Father in heaven.